All right, so the topic is a very timely one, which is Rosh Hashanah, and the, um, to address some of the basic themes of the Rosh Hashanah service. So I'll make some from preliminary comments about Rosh Hashanah, and then we'll look at the, what I think is the central prayer of Rosh Hashanah. First of all, let me just say that Rosh Hashanah itself Uh, it's found in the Torah in only two places and that the Torah says virtually nothing about it the two places are first of all it's one of the it's found in the list of holidays that we have in the book of Ayikra in this particular translation chapter uh, 23 verse number 23 the bottom of page 261 God instructs Moshe to tell the people that in the seventh month, the first day of the seventh month, will be a, a day of Shabbaton, a cessation from work. Zichron Shua Mikra Kodesh. It's a sacred day. A Zichron Shua. The question is, how do we translate those two words, Zichron and Shua? So, the JPS translation has a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts that is to say whatever loud blasts mean it's interesting that the Torah doesn't mention the word shofar here at all, it mentions it elsewhere but in terms of Rosh Hashanah it says nothing about the shofar it calls it a zichron shula that's it, very brief other holidays have a longer, typically a longer description about Rosh Hashanah the Torah says very little and then in the list of holidays in the book of Bamidbar, the days of which you bring an extra sacrifice called the Musaf, again we encounter Rosh Hashanah, list of holidays in chronological order. In chapter 29, very brief description, Uvachodesh Hashvi'i B'yachad Vachodesh, Mikro Kodesh same thing, page 352, Komurechet Avodoro Tasu, Yom Trua Yerachem. There the Torah calls it a day of Trua. So the two, and the only two places the Torah discusses Rosh Hashanah, in the first instance it's Zichron Trua, in the second instance it's Yom Trua. So what does that mean? The Torah says little about it, and in studying the Torah, Chumash, it's always good to try to figure out what the plain meaning of the text is before you get to all kinds of other interpretations what is the simple meaning of Rosh Hashanah in the Chumash it says nothing about a shofar that's for sure it says a trua a cry which might be a shofar sound or not but what is the significance of Rosh Hashanah so it appears to me anyway that the plain meaning of the Chumash in terms of Rosh Hashanah is that it basically is the day, the first day of the seventh month, it's a day which inaugurates the seventh month. 
Torah speaks about the seventh day, Shabbat being the holy day. The Torah speaks about the seventh year, which is the year of Shemitah, in chapter 25 being the sacred year. The Torah talks about counting seven years, seven times seven, and you end up with the, in the Jubilee year. And the Torah speaks about counting seven weeks. The Torah says, on the second, on the day after Passover, literally the day after the Sabbath, you count seven weeks, and at the end of the seven weeks, you have a holy day we call Shavuot, the festival of weeks. So we have days, we have weeks, we have years, and cycles of years. What we don't seem to have is months. So the answer is we do have months. We have the seventh month, which is a special month of the year, because it contains two festivals, Yom Kippur on one hand and Sukkot on the other, two major festivals. The first day of the month is the day that we announce that the seventh month is here. One might say that Rosh Hashanah, from this perspective, if it is a very special Rosh Chodesh. The Bible thinks of Rosh Chodesh as some kind of a special day. It's listed, by the way, Rosh Chodesh is, in the list of special holidays in the book of Bamidbar, where there's an extra sacrifice. But it's not listed in the Vayikra, special days. But we know from the reading of the Bible that Rosh Chodesh is a special day. Take, for example, the story of King David when he, he thinks that Saul is out to kill him. The reason he thinks Saul is out to kill him is because Saul is out to kill him. So that's it, if he thinks it. But in any event, he says to Jonathan, tomorrow is Rosh Chodesh. Why don't you go to the... And I usually sit at the king's table. I'm not going to show up. If the king says, where is he? Tell me he has a family affair or whatever. And the book of Shmuel tells us the story that Rosh Chodesh was observed for two days. So the first day the king said nothing. The second day he says, where's David? Oh, he begged off. He wanted to see his family. And that's the whole, whole story. Saul determines to kill David. In any event, Rosh Hashanah, from this perspective, is a very special Rosh Chodesh. And by the way, this idea that Rosh Hashanah, fundamentally, at its core, is a special Rosh Chodesh, which I think is the plain meaning of the text, finds very strong support from another place and that is the tractate in the Talmud called Rosh Hashanah. Because the tractate of Rosh Hashanah, for those who studied it, are 35 pages. Most of the tractate of Rosh Hashanah is not about Rosh Hashanah. It's about Rosh Chodesh, actually. It talks about Rosh Chodesh, Kiddush HaChodesh. But the last 10 pages are about Rosh Hashanah. So, the idea that Rosh Hashanah is an important day, because it inaugurates the sacred month, the seventh month, is the plain meaning of the text and I would say further that it would not be uh, it would not be far-fetched to presume that the holiday of Rosh Hashanah in a certain sense prefigures both the holiday of Yom Kippur and the holiday of Sukkot that is it partakes in some sense of both of those two festivals one might say it has the solemnity of Yom Kippur on one hand and the joy of Sukkot on the other. Rosh Hashanah is a very interesting holiday and it is observed differently in different communities. From one perspective, it's a, it's a, it's a holiday. Festive meals, uh, if you, a mourner stops the morning. On the other hand, there is a solemn side to Rosh Hashanah. So in a certain sense, one observes, experiences Rosh Hashanah 
as the preamble to Yom Kippur, but from a different perspective, it's really a festival. And the various, the Talmud and its commentaries wrestle with this issue. What is it primarily? In any event, that's what the Torah says about Rosh Hashanah, which is very little. The rabbinic tradition, however, reads something else into Rosh Hashanah. And it reads into Rosh Hashanah, first of all, that Rosh Hashanah is a day in which God is uh, proclaimed king. It's a coronation. This idea that, and it is Rosh Hashanah, let's start with that. When you read the Chumash, there is little sense, certainly in this verse, that Rosh Hashanah is Rosh Hashanah. Because Rosh Hashanah, the Torah is clear, in the first day of the seventh month, the Torah calls it the seventh month, one does not get a sense from this verse that it's the first month in any sense. Now that position that it's also the Rosh Hashanah is not an impossible position to defend. I simply want to point out that the plain reading of the Chumash certainly here doesn't suggest this at all. First day of the seventh month. Now, so the rabbinic understanding of Rosh Hashanah is that it's a day in which we proclaim God's kingship. And this idea that it's a day in which we crown God as king, and by the way, an interesting study would be the comparative Babylonian New Year's. Of course, the names of our months, Tishrei and Nisan, of course, are Babylonian. That's well known. Um, but what's interesting is if you study what we know about ancient Babylon, they had two different Rosh Hashanah. First, the month of Nisanu, which we call Nisan, and the other was Tishrat, which is Tishrei. And they have exactly these two Rosh Hashanahs. And they're very similar because one of them, I'm not saying they're identical in any sense, but one of them seems to be a day in which God is proclaimed king. So in, in our tradition, Rosh Hashanah is primarily a day in which God is proclaimed king. Evidence of that is clear. The simplest piece of evidence is, and a very important uh, book that gives us insight into Jewish tradition, when it comes to the festivals, is the uh, Machser of Rosh Hashanah, Siddur. So the Machser makes it clear that Rosh Hashanah is essentially a day in which God is proclaimed king. It makes it clear because the blessing of Rosh Hashanah, the blessing of the Shemona Esrei, Baruch HaTo Hashem, Melech HaKol Haaretz, Bekadesh Yisrael, V'yom HaZikaron, God is God, king of the world, who sanctifies Israel in the day of Zikaron, the liturgy called Rosh Hashanah, Yom HaZikaron, the day of remembrance. But the blessing is Melech HaKol Haaretz, and that's the blessing that we are reciting in all the prayers of Rosh Hashanah. By prayer I mean the Shmon the Amidah. So in Rosh Hashanah we have four prayers. Like Shabbos, we have evening prayer, morning prayer, afternoon, and we have the Musaf prayer. So there are four prayers of Rosh Hashanah. There's something interesting about, actually the whole thing is interesting, but there's something very interesting about the Rosh Hashanah service. It was, I, I must say, I don't mean this in a mean-spirited way, but I always find it incredible how little people know or think about the service of Rosh Hashanah. And many people go to the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah. 
But I'm something very curious about Rosh Hashanah's service, which is this. The Amidah, the Shemona Esrei, consists of a set of blessings. It's called the Shemona Esrei, because at its core it's 18 blessings, even though nowadays we have 19. But at its core it was 18. The Talmud are 18. On the Shabbat and on the holidays, we have seven. Always seven. Three in the, there are always three in the beginning and three in the end. And then there's one blessing in the middle, which is called Kedusha Hayom, the blessing of the sanctity of the day. So Yom Kippur, for example, in Musaf Yom Kippur, in some places it takes four hours, but there's one blessing. Kadesh Yisrael V'Yom HaKippurim. There's one exception to that rule. There's one festival where we don't have seven blessings, or 18, or 19, but we have nine blessings, and that's Rosh Hashanah. Nine blessings. And the blessings, the three intermediate blessings, even have a name. One is called Malchiot, Kingship. One is called Zichronot. And one is called Shofrot. Get to this later. This evening we'll talk about Zichronot. What is curious, beyond belief, is this. It's the only holiday that we have in which in three of the four services there are seven blessings. Only in the Musaf are there nine blessings. But the other, the other, Ma'ariv, Mincha, Shachrit, there are only seven blessings. It's very strange actually, and if you've thought about this, it's very odd. So there is an opinion in the medieval commentaries, which I think is probably probably shot, it's probably the simple meaning. There's something curious about, I mean, the, the t- this evening there are two goals. One is to talk about Zichronot, specifically, and the other is to get a sense generally about the structure of the, of the service. So there's something else which is interesting about the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah. Actually, there's several interesting features, but here's one of them. In the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah, let's say, and this, this is the Adler Yom, New Year fine. So in the in the Adler Machser, which many of you have, so the, we are repeating the Shemona Esrei of Chazarat Hashatz. On page 154, the Chazan says, Oleinu And the custom is to kneel in the service, Oleinu L'Shabeach. Then the Chazan continues. On 155, there are two paragraphs on 155. The first is a long paragraph, Evokeinu V'Okeya V'Oteinu, Hayeim Pifiyot Shkuchei Amchabet Yisrael. It's a long paragraph. The Chazan says, request that God be with those people that lead the service. On the bottom of 155, there's a short paragraph, now, one could ask a very good question. Both of these two paragraphs essentially are the same. They have the same function. They are a request by the prayer leader to be granted permission to pray. You might ask the question, why does the prayer leader have to ask permission twice? To which the answer is, I think, simple. It, we can blame, as we do on many things in Rosh Hashanah service, we can blame the uh, printer. The, they were, the, the printer decided to include both. 
there is no logical reason that the Chazan twice has to ask permission. But that's what, they're both beautiful prayers. But here's something interesting. Which of these two requests to, to lead the service is the more genuine one? And which is the secondary one? You can't really tell, but, but it's clear actually. Which one is the second one? Which one? The second one is clearly, clearly the primary request. And we know this for two reasons. First of all, we know it because of the way it ends. It ends in the most strange way. It's a set of verses, the last two of which, if you notice on the bottom of 155, Hashem Svatai Tiftach is the first, the penultimate verse. And the last verse is, So the next to last verse is the verse that we recite before the Amida. And the last verse is the verse we recite after the Amida, which is very strange. It sounds like prior to the Chazan saying the, saying the next thing which we'll get to asking permission and the permission is a set of verses the last two of which are the verse recited before the Shemona Asrei and the verse after the Shemona Asrei which certainly suggests to us that this little prayer is a prayer that is to be identified with the Amida in general and secondly, not so much because of the text, but the way it is recited. That is to say, the way it's sung. It's very important to understand that the way the prayers are sung are part of a very important tradition. <coughs> this permission, when the Chazan asks permission to lead the service, there's a tune for it. I can barely talk much of a sing. Do you know the tune for the Rishus? In Shachrit it's also that way. In Shachrit, in the beginning of the Shavona Esrei, the Chazan asked permission to pray. It's unique to Rosh Hashanah. Ask permission. So it's, for example, the first day in Shachrit, let's see, in this particular Machzer, it's on page... Where is it? Page 90-95. Begins with Misod Chachamim Unavonim and then it continues with the paragraph on day one Yoreti Bifsoti Siach Vashchil. There's a tune for that. Anybody know it? Anybody want to sing it? It goes like this. I can barely sing but I'll, you'll recognize it. It goes like this. Yoreti bifsotihi siachu yashchil This is the Ashkenazim, the Sfarim don't know from this. Ko bilichalot p'nei noro p'dochil And they go, ah, 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 right? And how do you say ochil akel in Musaf? Ochil akel achalefono It's the same tune. It's a, tune, it's a tune for the Rishut. So it's a tune for the Chazan who has permission to pray.
So that the short prayer on the bottom of 155 is the Chazan asking permission to pray. On Yom Kippur we have it also. Now the question that's obvious is this. I understand on page 95 that the Chazan in Shachris asked permission to pray where he asked permission to pray, which is in the first blessing of the Amidah. He's about to start davening, so he asked permission. But the permission to pray in Musaf is after Kedusha. It's after Nisan Atoka. It's after the Piyutim. The Chazan's been davening for an hour and a half. <laughs> now he's asking permission to daven? What is this? I mean... <coughs> what, 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 what so the point is... So the medievals asked this question. Ritzvah. And the Ritzvah's answer is this. Where does the Chazan ask permission to pray? On Rosh Hashanah, he asked permission to pray before the top of 156. That paragraph. The paragraph of which many of you recognize as the second paragraph of that is recited at the end of, typically, end of services, actually is the beginning of what's called Malchiyot. The Malchiyot service begins with the second paragraph of Olenu. So the Chazan is asking permission to pray before Malchiyot. So the Ritzvah says, because the truth of the matter is, he thinks, that on Rosh Hashanah there are only seven blessings. Everybody always says seven blessings. In Musaf, the Chazan, and only the Chazan, added three blessings. So the service of Rosh Hashanah is uniform. It's always seven blessings. But in Musaf, when you blow the shofar, together with the shofar, the Chazan is reciting three additional blessings. The first of which is Malchiot, the second of which is Zichronot, and the third of which is Shofrot. The truth of the matter is, the, the Mishnah already says that on Rosh Hashanah, we have three blessings. Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot. And these blessings, according to the Mishnah, are the blessings on the shofar. The Mishnah does not know from, by the way, our practice of blowing the shofar before Musaf after Kriya Satoma. Doesn't know that that practice doesn't exist, and it doesn't know of any blessing on the shofar at all, actually, other than the blessing of Malchiot Zichronot and Shofrot which strictly speaking are not blessings on the shofar but they're blessings which are attending the shofar together with the shofar the practice of blowing the shofar before Musaf is a much later practice which the various medieval sources and others try to justify we do it because people are tired, they're sick, they can't stay for the whole service but actually the mission doesn't know from that it only knows from the blessings of Malchiot Zichronot and Shofrot. Now, we can ask ourselves an additional question. We have nine blessings on Rosh Hashanah. The problem is, actually, okay, given the fact that we have these three blessings, we can ask ourselves a very good question, which is, why do we have nine blessings on Rosh Hashanah? In fact, we should have ten. We're missing a blessing. We're missing the normal blessing. For every festival, including the Shabbat, Baruch Hashem, 
Mekadesh HaShabbat the blessing that the Talmud calls Kedusha Tayom so what happened to the blessing of Kedusha Tayom on Rosh Hashanah why are there only nine Malchiot, Sichron, or Shofar is nine what happened to the standard blessing of Kedusha Tayom so of course the answer is that we have that blessing but we don't have it as an independent blessing we have it as a blessing combined with another blessing and the truth is that in the Talmudic literature is a dispute which blessing do you combine with Kedushat Hayom the practice of the Jewish people has been for a very long time thousands of years a couple of thousand anyway that we are combining the blessing of Malchiot with the blessing of Kedushat Hayom the other opinion in the Talmud is that you combine the blessing of Zichronot with Kedushat Hayom and it's not just a technical dispute presumably it's a dispute about the nature of Rosh Hashanah what is, what is Kedusha Hayom? it's a holy day how does what, what is the how is the holiness of Rosh Hashanah expressed so the practice we have reflected by the Matzah Melch HaKol the Kaddish Yisrael which is the blessing for Malchiot and all the prayers of Rosh Hashanah suggests to us that the core idea of Rosh Hashanah is God's kingship that's right God is proclaimed king on Rosh Hashanah now of course we can ask ourselves the question what does that mean for us that we proclaim God as king how do we understand that how do we, how do we relate to that is, is a good question important question in any event so we have Malchiot, Zichronot and Shofrot that's the three blessings now within each blessing something else is unique to Rosh Hashanah by the way let me make an obvious point it's from a structural standpoint a thematic standpoint Rosh Hashanah is the most exceptional prayer that we have it's, it's, it's exceptional in terms of the number of blessings and it's also exceptional in terms of the structure of each of the blessings that is to say we have no other service in which the which is so highly structured the rules for the blessings are all found in the, in the Talmud in the last chapter of Rosh Hashanah and the rules are very precise the, the currency of the service the, current, the text of Rosh Hashanah consists of sets of verses verses how many verses so here we have a dispute between two Tanaitic authorities Rabbi Akiva on one hand and against Rabbi Akiva Yochanan ben Nuri on the other Rabbi Akiva's position that we follow in the blessings of Malchiot Sichronot and Shofrot is that in each of the three blessings we are required to recite ten verses minimally ten not just that not just ten but Rabbi Akiva specifies where the ten come from he says the three verses the first three verses are from the Torah the next three verses are from what's called the writings the Ketuvim in our our text they come from the Psalms and the next three verses come from the prophetic writings Nevi'im and the tenth verse is from the Torah and that's true in Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofar. 
Okay, everybody got that? That's Rabbi Akiva's position. Torah, Ketuvim, not Tanakh, Tachan. Torah, Ketuvim, Nevi'im. Now, we, we can ask another question. Why do we deviate from Tanakh? Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. Well, there's a good reason for that. If I have time, I'll discuss that. But, and it tenses from the Torah. Four, three, 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 and one. Correct? Now, why is it three, 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 and one? Why isn't it four, three, and three? Why not have four from the Torah, three from the Ketuvim, three from the Prophets? We don't do that. We have three, 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 and one. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is this. There's a difference between the first nine verses and the tenth. The first nine verses essentially are statements about God. The tenth is also a statement about God, but the tenth is embedded in some kind of request. Because Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot have two parts, apart from the verses. They're two pieces to the service, to each, each blessing. The first is a lengthy description of some quality of God, but the tenth verse is embedded inside the request. So, for example, Zichronot. We jump to Zichronot for a second. Begins on 158 in this translation. Atazocher Maseolam. 158. 159. And you see on 159, there's a little space and a new paragraph. Elokeinu velkeavoteinu zachreinu b'zichrontov Remember us for good. Inside that request, remember us for good, is a verse from the Torah. So the first nine verses are in this long statement, but the tenth verse is embedded inside inside the request. That's true of Zichronot. That's true of Shofrot. What's interesting is Malchiot. In the case of Malchiot, the fourth verse of God's kingship is not found inside the request section but just before it. That's very interesting. Why is that so? So first of all, let me get, I'll just say something about that. First of all, what is the fourth verse from Malchiot? So here's the point. The Gemara not only gives us very specific instructions about the verses, where they come from, what, what qualifies as a good verse or not, okay? You have to have the word, like the word zikronot, you need the word zikaron. Malchiot, you need the word melech. So, the problem is, in Malchiot, it's a very simple problem. You need three verses from the Torah, and then a fourth verse from the Torah. One problem is that when you scour the Torah, you can only find three verses. You don't have four verses in the Torah that speak about God as King, which are suitable for the blessing. So therefore, we have to import a fourth verse, which doesn't say the word Melech. It's a verse I think we're all familiar with in this room, which is what? The Torah, Katuv Reimar, 
Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. The Shema, which does not say the word Melech, but the mission describes the Shema as Kabbalat Omachut Shemayim. So it's the acceptance of God's kingship. So that's the verse we recite, the fourth verse, but it's not recited inside the request. It's recited prior to prior to now why is that so who has reflected on that question here by the way of why the four yeah. now by the way let me just say something about this may sound all technical but actually it's not technical because the structure also conveys meaning it's a very important point so probably what I would suggest is this and I'm sure others have suggested it if you think about Malchiot in general we'll get to Zichron shortly if you think about Malchiot, we notice something curious about Malchiot. The Chazin is asking permission to pray before Malchiot. But Malchiot begins with which we know as we are hoping, we are praying that God will reign over the whole world. We know that as the second paragraph of a very familiar prayer See the sitter, the daily sitter extracted the highlights often of the service of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur extracted the highlights so Olenu Lushabeach is one of the highlights the second paragraph is Malchiot so what is the first paragraph whatever its composition is there's all kinds of discussions the academics have a field day with this but it doesn't matter the point is Olenu Lushabeach is a preliminary statement to Malchiot what it says is the following Olenu it's us it says, I am accepting God's kingship. That's the first paragraph. I accept it. Once I say, I accept it, then I can turn to God and say, and you know what? Everybody should accept it. So you can't, you can't say, you know? You say, we want the whole world to accept God's kingship. So the question would be, and what about you? So therefore, we say Shema Yisrael before the request. Because Shema Yisrael is personal acceptance. It says in our Torah, then we are, we are, we individually are accepting the yoke of heaven and the commitments, obligations. Then we say, reign over the whole world. The, the, word, the word kol, all, is the governing word in that request. Kol olam, kol etc. So that's, but that's the exception. But generally speaking, the tenth verse is embedded in the request. Now, let me make a different point about Rosh Hashanah davening. And to make this point, we can contrast it with, it, with its sister, with its holy sister, which is Yom Kippur. Because on Yom Kippur, we have a very similar structure. We have a Musaf, and on Yom Kippur, the Chazan is also in the middle of the davening asking permission. But the permission that the Chazan asks on Yom Kippur is followed by what? What comes right after the Chazan in Musaf, Yom Kippur? Ochil Rokel. What comes next? What is the next? What? Right, it's the service of the high priest. The service of the high priest. There are many different versions of it. But it's a reenactment, actually. On Yom Kippur, in the traditional service, we reenact the service of the high priest. 
What's interesting is, if you study the Machsar of Yom Kippur, and you read there are many different poems written, which are reenactments of the Avodah of the, of the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur. Some are very old. Some go back, way back in time. Maybe 4th century, maybe even earlier. The earliest versions of the Avodah, the earliest we have, is simply a restatement, almost word-for-word restatement, of the first eight chapters of Mishnah Yoma. The Mishnah in Tractate Yoma, which deals with Yom Kippur, describes the service. That, that set of Mishnayot is the basis of the Avoda that we have. And the reason I mention this is because the contrast to Rosh Hashanah is very striking. The currency of Rosh Hashanah, the text of the Rosh Hashanah service, which is Malchiyot, Zichronot, and Shofrot. Everything else is secondary from a structural standpoint. Maybe powerful, it's secondary, structurally. The currency are verses from the Bible. On Rosh Hashanah, the service consists of the recitation of biblical verses. On Yom Kippur, it consists of the recitation of Mishnah. Now, what, what, what do we make of that, actually? What we make of it, I think, is this. The service of Yom Kippur is... Actually, it's, actually, it's very easy to connect to Yom Kippur. I, I find it simple. Yom Kippur is a day of forgiveness. We are thinking about the past mistakes. We're thinking about how we can make some positive changes. We are trying to come to terms with our errors. It's called Vidui. We're asking for forgiveness and making commitments for the future. It's very simple to understand. It's all about us, basically. Okay, we stand before God. But we are standing before God honestly and thinking about our experiences and hoping that we can uh, achieve some sense of uh, some sense of, 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 of reality of who we actually are and what our possibilities are. That's easy. Rosh Hashanah is different. Rosh Hashanah, I'm proclaiming that God is king. What in the world does that mean? And furthermore, how do I even proclaim that God is king? We are, generally speaking, in our tradition, very reluctant to to say too much about God. So on Rosh Hashanah, in speaking about God, we take a very simple way out. We simply quote God. We we, we are citing, the whole service are citations of God's own words, as revealed through prophecy, whether it's the Torah, or the Psalms, or the prophetic writings. So on the day, which is a day about God, of course, it has human implications, obviously, but today about God. We live in God's world, so the text of Rosh Hashanah is, is a text of words that are revealed by God. And not only that, it's extremely structured. So we're, we're very cautious in talking about God in our tradition. Highly structured, and the verses are taken from the Torah and from the Psalms and from prophetic writings. Now, one last word before by introduction, which is important, that Malchiot, actually, of the three, Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot, even though I believe that from an emotional standpoint, and even from a structural standpoint, the key prayer on Rosh Hashanah is Zichronot. And the day is called Yom HaZikaron, by the way, but the blessing of the day is identified with God's kingship. And here there's something very curious about Rosh Hashanah.
we are I mentioned there's a dispute in the Talmud between Rabbi Akiva and Yochanan ben Nuri Rabbi Akiva has said that in each of the prayers of Rosh Hashanah we need to say ten, ten biblical verses at least ten Yochanan ben Nuri said no unnecessary three is enough one from the Torah one from the holy writings Psalms and one from the prophets so Rabbi Akiva wins that dispute we follow Rabbi Akiva but Yochanan ben Nuri has not been lost either Yochanan ben Nuri is also found in our service and not only is it found in Rosh Hashanah but the strangest thing of all we even say it Yom Kippur I think that it's so beautiful you cannot say it that's why what is the what is the Malchiot of Yochanan ben Nuri who knows that is right now where is that that is recited actually in all of the services of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur that is found let's say in the Musaf where is it it's found 151 sounds good yeah 151 yes page 151 it's recited in all the prayers 151 151 now consists let's find it elsewhere 151 just confuse us let's find it elsewhere let's find it we say it all the time in Shachri it's found on page in this translation on page One hundred and bottom of one oh seven. Awesome prayer. So Uvachentain Pachtah consists of several paragraphs. The first is Uvachentain Pachtah. We want God's the fear of God, the dread of God to be imposed on the world. That's the first paragraph. Second paragraph is Uvachentain Kavodashem Liamecha. God's dignity should be restored to the Jewish people the third paragraph is Uvachain Sadikim Yiru V'Yismachu the righteous should rejoice then it says you should reign over the whole world alone, God alone should be king and the last Kadoshata, you are transcendent, holy right, Kadoshata, and ends with Baruch Hashem HaMelech HaKadosh now why do I call this the Malchiot of Yochanan ben Nuri. Because there's something interesting about this quite exquisite prayer. And that is, that if you look at the prayer, you'll notice that inside this little prayer, there are two verses cited from the Bible. The first of which, on page 108, is in the paragraph Vitimloch. You should reign over the alone. In, Mount, in Zion, your holy place, Jerusalem, as it is written in your holy writings, Yimroch Hashem liolam rokayich tzion v'dar v'dar hallelujah. God should reign in Zion forever. Praise God. Where is that verse from? Yimroch Hashem liolam rokayich tzion v'dar v'dar hallelujah. It's recited in the morning service. It's from the it's very one of the last psalms. It's one of the last psalms of the book of Psalms. Then it says, 
you are holy and awesome. There's no God like you. As it is written, Lord of hosts is exalted in judgment and the Holy God is sanctified in righteousness. Very beautiful. Blessed are you, O God, the Holy King. Where is that verse from? I don't expect you to know where it's from. It's from Isaiah, actually. I believe it's chapter 28. Say something very curious. The two verses, the first of these two verses inside is from the Psalms. And the next verse is from the prophets. So what's missing is the first verse, which is obviously from the Torah. It's exactly the order. Torah, Psalms, prophets. What's missing is the first verse. And it's obvious there was a first verse. Because how does it begin? Uvechein. What does Uvechein mean? So therefore. Therefore what? Something came before therefore. Right? X, therefore Y. So what is the X? So we don't have an X. The X is missing. Now the question is the X, no doubt, was a verse from the Torah. But we don't have it. We start therefore without the... (coughs) Why don't we have the X is the question. Why don't we have the biblical verse? So many, many years ago, uh, I think it was on Rosh Hashanah actually, (coughs) I said, let's study the prayers. And someone in the audience made a very good suggestion, which I think is right. What he said was this. He said, you know, we are including the Malchit of Yochanan ben Nuri. Because it's so beautiful, really. And Yochanan ben Nuri's Malchit, by the way, are not in the fourth blessing, they're in the third. They combine with the blessing of God's transcendence, the transcendent king. So we have to pick a verse from the Torah. Which verse of the Torah could we pick? Whatever verse you pick to describe God's kingship, it's a problem. Because you're going to be preempting about the service afterward. There only are three verses of God's kingship. So we don't want to preempt Rabbi Akiva's mafia. We basically follow Rabbi Akiva. Okay, we're including Yochanan ben Nuri. But if we included the verse from the, from the Torah, we would be preempting Rabbi Akiva. So we choose to, we, we don't say it. We start with Uvachem. But at, it, but at its core, it's essentially the Malchiot of Yochanan ben Nuri, which I think, which underscores the fact that the day of Rosh Hashanah is about God's kingship. Now, in the remaining time, I wanted to discuss the Zichronot, which are very beautiful and powerful. Then maybe one word at the end about Malchiot. Okay, so Zichronot is like this. What, do you have a question? What are what Zichronah means remembrances. It consists of statements and verses. We know they're going to be nine verses and a tenth. Three from the Torah. So what is the theme of Zichronah? So the Machser is so helpful to us in helping us understand this very strange day of Rosh Hashanah. It begins... <coughs> Because we could even begin in the Silent Shimon Asri, because it's recited in the Silent Shimon Asri as well. And this is on page page 130, the bottom of 136. 
These, by the way, the text of these blessings is ancient. The pieces of them we have already, the, the, the Talmud makes reference to them. They're about minimally 2,000 years old. And they're ascribed to the school of Rav, actually, to Giyata de Rav, who was the first generation on Mora. What is the theme? God is remembering what was wrought from eternity, what was formed from old. All secrets are revealed, hidden things from the beginning. There's no forgetfulness before the throne of your glory. Nothing is hidden from your eyes. You remember every deed. No creature is concealed. All things are manifest and known. You will concede to the end of all generations. You will bring on the appointed time of memorial when every spirit and soul will be visited. Multitudinous works be remembered with countless throngs of your creatures. What is that about, actually? What is the theme? I'll read a little more. From the beginning, you made this known. May Reshit Kozoto Data. Nufanim, from a foretime, from the very beginning you revealed it. Zayom Tchilat Mazdecha, this day, the beginning of your work. Zikaron Riyom Rishon, is a memorial of the first day. Kichoku Yisrael Hu, a statute for Israel, and an ordinance of the God of Jacob. What is the theme? The first Zichronot, you first encounter it in this very quite beautiful poetry. What is the idea of Zichronot? Yes? It is certainly connected to creation because it speaks and I think it presumes that, no doubt. But what is the idea? What, is, what does it mean, by the way? This day is a remembrance of the first day. This day is the beginning of your deeds, your actions. Zikaron v'yom v'yishon a remembrance of the first day. Kichoku Yisrael Hu, a statue for Israel, Mishpat Reohei Yaakov, a day of judgment for the God of Jacob. We say this twice a year on Rosh Hashanah. What does it mean? What are we actually saying here? Yep. This is the first day of creation, right? It's the first day of creation remains. Rosh Hashanah is the... That is true. And therefore... And therefore what? You're right, but therefore what? Okay, it doesn't mean it means our first day. Okay, you're right. You're saying very well that actually Rosh Hashanah in the Jewish tradition is not the day of creation. It's the sixth day of creation. Okay, I agree. And therefore, correct. And therefore, you said something you said something very important. So let's hear it. You said it. What did you say? Let me let me let me let me explain what you're saying. I'll explain it for you. What? What? And therefore what? And therefore? And therefore what? That's not what it means. He said well, correct. It is true that Rosh Hashanah in our tradition is not the first day; it's the sixth day. But what does it mean? This is the day—a remembrance of the first day. The service presumes a midrash. 
It's based on a midrash that appears elsewhere. The midrash says that Adam was created on this, well, the Torah says <coughs> Adam was created on the sixth day. That's what it says in the first account of creation. In the second account of creation, it describes the sin of partaking of the forbidden fruit and the judgment visited upon Adam and all of humanity. The Midrash says it all happened on the same day. And therefore, the day of creation, Harat Olam, is the day of judgment, the sin and judgment. That's what we say. This day of Rosh Hashanah was the day of the first judgment. And we, Israel, embrace that judgment. We celebrate the judgment. That's what you're saying. We celebrate that judgment and we willingly enter into judgment. And that's what Zichronot is. Zichronot begins, it's actually, is an overused word, awesome, but it is actually awesome. It talks about God, God's judgment, and what it means to think of God as a judge. So first of all, it means the following. God is, we speak about God as remembering everything that ever happened. We don't remember everything that ever happened. I'm talking about ourselves. We conveniently forget most things that happened. And when you forget something that happened, in effect what you're saying is, it's of no consequence. So on Rosh Hashanah we say quite the opposite. Everything we do is of consequence. And not only is it of consequence, but more than that, it has consequences. That's what it means to say that God not only looks at the past, but God looks into the future. Looking into the future means God understands that everything that we ever do in word or action carries with it consequences. Everything. And the consequences are A, typically unknown to us, and very often we create a reality that we can never take back. That's a very important point. So the judgment, the idea of memory is First of all, it reminds us that what we do actually matters, even if we don't think so. God remembers every deed, and every deed carries with it a consequence. That's the first point of Zichronot. The next point is that the... It's interesting, by the way, that we are recalling the first day of creation. The first day of creation, which is the first day of judgment, of our creation, the sixth day, but it's the day of judgment, that's the point. The day of din. And this has nothing to do with the Jewish people. There were no Jewish people. It's about humanity. You know, Rosh Hashanah carries with it at its core of a universal message. And we are, but we, we, are, we are embracing the judgment. And this judgment, the text continues, is not just the judgment about individuals. It's also a judgment about states. By states, Medinot is interesting. Why did the text use the word Medinot over here? Because the word Medina, actually, what is the Medina? It's a state, but it's a, but it's, it's, it's a state that has Din. Medina is related to the word Din, but also in, 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 in Arabic is this way as well. Medina is Din. Megillah Esther plays with it, Medina, Medina. Medina is all about, Medina, Megillah Esther is all about Din and Dat and Davar and the, all words for 
but there is no actual din there. But that's the point is, so Medina, on the Medina means, on could be a state, could be institutions, it could be collectives, it could be not just individuals, but institutions that people create, whether it's states, governments, local, federal, it doesn't matter. They're also taken into account. The individual is not just an individual, individual is a social being. So there's a collective, there's a group, there are institutions, and there's a judgment there as well. Remember, Adam was not just a person. Adam's all humanity. So the, the judgment of Adam is a judgment for individual people and for all humanity as well. And then the text continues, created beings, it's individuals, are taken, are, are taken into account. By the way, Pakads in Biblical Hebrew is synonymous with Zachar, but it's not actually synonymous. It has a different valence, a different nuance to it. Zachar is typically positive. Pakad in Biblical Hebrew carries with it a double meaning of memory, but also judgment. To visit the sins upon the children. So pokade carries with it often a sense of judgment. But to count is also pokad, to be held accountable. To be held accountable. So that's pokad. Ubriot boyi pokade, not just collectives, but individual. Raskiram, to remember them for life or death. Who is not counted on this day? Kizech, then the, the text continues. Kizech kol hayitzur The memory of all yitzur. Yitzur is a word. Yitzur is a created being. The second creation narrative in Genesis talks about vayitzer. The first is bara. The second is yotzar to form, to shape. God shapes the person. God shapes the world. The memory of all created beings, Yetzer, right? Yetzer Lefanecha comes before you. Maseish upekudato. A person's action upekudato. What does pekudato mean? Here they translate destiny. I don't think so. What is pekudato? Maseish upekudato. Modern Hebrew, you have actually biblical Hebrew. A tough kid. What's a tough kid? A task. We are judged in two ways, our deeds, and we're judged another way. Are we carrying out our task? Everybody has a different task in this world. So we're judged by our own task. Are we carrying out our own task? Are we go to the actions, the works, right? of Mitzadegavah, the works and ways of the person. Machshavot Adam, a person's thoughts. It's a frightening idea. You go before a judge, while she knows your thoughts. V'tachbu otav, I would say, rationalizations. V'yitzrei ma'u'eish, and drives and desires. In short, if you put the bastard out at this point, and we say, it's pretty hopeless actually. Because, <laughs> what? The judge knows everything. The impulses, the rationalizations, the excuses, all the failures, not living up to our potential, and not only to speak of that, how we group with other people, and not just that, the effect of our actions, and all the forgotten things. 
That's Zichronot. That's the first theme of Zichronot. And that's what we call Rosh Hashanah is Yom Adin. That's Zichronot. At this point, if we stop at this point, it's hopeless. But the rest of the rest of this particular text gives us some hope. Actually, it gives us a way out, a way to survive the judgments. Yes? I just wanted to say, I'm feeling a little bit about original sin here, the idea of, of Adam and the sin happening on the same day. And I didn't think that was a particularly Jewish idea, but... What on the contrary. Know? It's very Jewish. It okay. We think they got it from. What? Okay. First of all, <laughs> there, there are many... There, there are many Judaism has a wide range. It's probably true that when the Christians adopted it and gave it a particular form, it's certainly true that I would say the Jewish tradition moves in the other direction. That's happened in a lot of ways, and some of them are very unfortunate, actually, I think. But it's a response. That's true. And I think that... I I would say that, as a general rule, I would say that within Judaism there is a very strong sense that people are able to transform themselves. I would say the Jewish myth actually. If you ask me what is the Jewish myth? And I mean it's not true. What is the guiding principle of the book of Genesis? What is that core story? The core story of the Jewish people I would say if you had to pick one story it's Jacob wrestling with the angel and becoming Israel. Self-transformation. Yes, God did send an angel. We need divine assistance. But fundamentally the idea that you're capable, capable of largely shaping your own destiny, of, of becoming a different person, of undergoing a, a, a transformation, tshuva, as it were, something that is at the center of Jewish thought in the, in the Bible, and I would say rabbinic thinking is, as well. So that's certainly true. But the idea that the human being is limited... The Torah says it. Yetzirah, Vadam, Rabbi, Norav. The Torah said it. The person has the evil imagination. The evil impulse is always there. And within the Talmud, that's stated a thousand times. They were very well aware of the human possibility to do wrong and to do evil. Non-Jew and Jew alike. It's clear. In any event, this is the first piece of the Zichronot. Sounds pretty pretty dire actually and now we have one of the turning points I would say that in thinking about this first piece of the Rosh Hashanah service the person that we are remembering is of course Adam who's both an individual person and all of humanity and now we have one of the turning points of the service Ashrei Yishelo Yishkachaka Uben Adam Yitam Etzbach this is one of the turning points. Happy is the one who does not forget. Does not forget you. The one who doesn't forget God. So easy to forget. But means happy is the one who is constantly reminded of an objective right, basically. Happy is the one who strengthens himself, herself, in God, even when things appear to be very dismal. Those who seek out drisha, it's a very important word, drisha. Those who, and the, it is one of the key words here, because the word drisha has two meanings. One is to search for something, to seek, seek something. But the word drisha has another meaning. 
it's in the Chumash, Bidorashta Bechakarta, means to study something very deeply and carefully. That's why we chose the name Drisha. So it has that double meaning of deep study, but also the search. Happy is the one who's Dorshecha. And then, this talks about, not about God remembering, but about people remembering. Those who seek out God, those who search for God, the Dorshecha. And then the text says, Kizecha kolamasim lefanecha ba. A remembrance of all deeds come before you. And here we have an interesting play. Fiatod doresh kulam. You are, what is that, doresh? It means you are studying them very carefully, but it carries with it the other significance. You seek them out. And suddenly, this judge is not just an objective judge. Everybody's judged just based on the evidence. But the judge is what it was doresh. The judge for those who seek God out, that's what it says. For those who are searching and seeking, then God is doresh them. God seeks them out. God finds a way to view them favorably. Even though, objectively speaking, no one is innocent. But the doshecha, those who don't forget. If you don't forget God, forgetting is not just an intellectual category in the Bible. And neither is memory. It's an ethical category. So the point is, those that don't forget God, God doesn't forget them. Those who search for God, God searches for a way. And now we have the example of the person who represents the one that God seeks out, that God protects, that God searches for. He stands on the stage once a year for us. He remembered Noah with love. And here's the, that key word, with love. Because up to now... There's no mention of love. There's a mention only of judgment. Deeds and judgment. It's all very clear. But suddenly, we have somebody whom God is remembering with love. And this leads us into, of course, remembering. And let me make a very important point about this text and many other texts and rabbinic interpretations. I just want to say this. I think it's, a very, it's very true. And it's very important because many people say the opposite. So, I want my point of view. The rabbis, let's say in this particular text, the rabbis do not have a free hand here. The rabbis operate with constraints. For example, there is a constraint. Rabbi Akiva laid down this rule and we accepted it. The blessing requires ten biblical verses and their rules about which verses qualify. So it's not that the rabbis are going to compose a prayer here, sort of do what you want. They can't do that. There's a, they're operating with a very particular structure. There's a lot of creativity within the structure, but there is a structure. And the same thing is true of traditions, generally speaking. The idea that interpreters of the tradition can do whatever they want is simply untrue. And if anybody, I don't care who says that, it's not right. They're operating with a text and with a tradition. Yes, they're trying to move it off in a different direction. They're trying to reshape it. They're coming up with different interpretations. But at the end of the day, there is a text. That's simply free to say whatever they want. And the same thing is true here. They've got to get to ten verses. 
and there aren't that many verses to get to. So the first two verses deal with Noah. The text cites, as it is written, remember we need the ten verses. So now the first two verses describe the salvation of Noah. Noah for the author is very important because Noah is remembered favorably in a situation but nobody else is remembered favorably at all. So the idea that God can extend God's support to a particular person, one member of a group, and single out that member, I guess we would call that divine providence, that's one of the themes of, of the Rosh Hashanah service. That's the first two verses. But Noah only has two verses of remembering, so now we have a third verse. And the third verse is very significant. The third verse on the bottom of page 137, Pneba. And now we have a third verse to complete our three biblical verses from the Torah. God heard their cries, their being Israel and Egypt. And God remembered God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this verse is a turning point in the service for a different reason. We have three people mentioned now in this blessing. The first is Adam. Right? He's not mentioned by name, but remembrance of the first day. Creation of the human. That's Adam. Then we have the second person, Noah. And now we have the third, Abraham. So the service of Zichronot is based upon Adam, Noah, and Abraham. Now the question is, what do we make of that? Of course, let me state the obvious, not to beat a dead horse. The question, what do, you, what do you make of it, can only be answered once you recognize that it's based on Adam, Noah, and Abraham. Which virtually nobody does. But when you see it, it's obvious actually when you see it. Of course, Adam, Noah, and Abraham. What do you make of that? And not just that. There's something else which actually I'm speaking about tomorrow night. How this blessing ends. Because the blessing ends, of course, each of the blessings has two parts. One is an exposition, nine verses. And then you have the tenth verse. The tenth verse is embedded in the request. The tenth verse is from the Torah. So when you get to the last verse, which, which on the bottom of 138, speaks about, we ask God to remember the promise. I will remember the covenant I made of old when I took them out of Egypt. On the bottom of 138, and then the blessing ends, You are remembering all forgotten things. There's no forgetfulness before your throne. So you certainly remember the binding of Isaac. Blessed are you, O God, who remembers the covenant. So there's something so interesting about this blessing. First of all, the end of the blessing turns everything on its head. Because it begins by saying God remembers everything which the only response can be two little words, Oive. There's no, there's no, it's hopeless. Everything. But the way it ends is, you remember everything. So you certainly remember Akedah Yitzchak. You remember everything. Right? And you will remember them, Akedah Yitzchak today, right? 
remembered his descendants in, 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 in mercies, Rachamim. Blessed are you, O God, who remembers the covenant. So it strikes me that there are three themes of Zichron here. The first is judgment. That's how it starts. And that's Adam. The second theme we would call providence. That is to say, not everybody is judged equally. Those that seek out God, those who have memory themselves, they are judged with love. That, that's, very, that's a good thing if you're Noah. Noah is described in the Torah as Sadiq. He's a righteous person. He's Tamim. He's pure. He walks, he walks before God. He walks with God. So if you're pure and righteous and walk with God, you got no problems on Rosh Hashanah. How about the rest of us? That's the problem. The rest, what do we do with the rest of us? What, what's the, so the solution for the rest of us, apparently, and the, and the blessing, is Baruch Hashem Zocher Habrit, God remembers the covenant. So the, the covenant, Zocher Habrit, seems to be the critical idea of the Zichronot uh, blessing. And what is that, the question is, what, what does that mean? How does that speak to us? But the one who represents the covenant is actually Abraham. Now just to, what I wanted to talk about tomorrow night, for those who are interested, is that if you think about Adam and Noah and Abraham, right, this trio of Adam, Noah, and Abraham, so we think of Abraham as the first Jew. His name is Avram, great father. We think of great father as the beginning of the Jewish people, and he's the one that God enters into with the covenant. His descendants will possess a land, he's covenantal, etc. That's all true. But there is another way to read Abraham, which is also true. It's what it says in Pirkei Avot. There were ten generations from Adam to Noah, and ten generations from Noah to Abraham. And when you read the Abraham story, you have to read it with a different set of eyes, an additional set of eyes. That is to say that Abraham is not just the beginning of the Jewish people, but the Abraham saga is the culmination of the story of creation. The story of creation, I'll talk about that tomorrow at length, but the story of creation actually, if you think about the creation narratives, okay? First, there's the first creation narrative of Genesis chapter 1. And the story of the Garden of Eden and the expulsion from Eden. And there's a flood, so that everything's destroyed. And there's a recreation, so Noah is the recreation, right? But Noah actually, if you think about it, is only the recreation of the first story of creation. The first story of creation is about heaven and earth. In the beginning, God creates heaven and earth. And that's destroyed by the flood. And there's a recreation. That's Noah. But what Noah doesn't recreate is the second creation narrative. The second creation narrative is the Garden of Eden, or to use our terminology, sacred space. So after the expulsion from Eden, the story of the Bible, and the Torah certainly, is the search for for alternative sacred space which ends up being the land of Canaan ends up being the temple, the Mishkan who's the person actually 
who discovers alternative sacred space? Who's the person who uncovers or discovers the land of Canaan? Who's the person who, who discovers or uncovers within the land of Canaan the sacred space within the sacred space? It's certainly not Noah, but who is it? Of course, Abraham. And, and, and both of those things he discovers. He, dis- he sent Rechacha. The first Rechacha is to the land of Canaan, the sacred space. And the second Rechacha is to the place that I will tell you, to Mount Moriah, to the temple. It's the sacred space within the sacred space. And that sacred space within the sacred space is, in fact, in the Torah, the alternative to the Garden of Eden. You never return to Eden, but you can create a sacred space. So in point of fact, I'll explain this for those interested tomorrow what length, because it's, it's a way of reading the Torah, which is very important, and it opens up 50 different possible ways to understand all kinds of things. But the point of Rosh Hashanah, you see, Hayom Harat Olam, Rosh Hashanah is presented as the day of the creation of the world. That is to say, because Rosh Hashanah, Nisan, is not that way. The holiday of Nisan fundamentally is the formation of the Jewish people and it's very particular to the Jews. Nisan is not a holiday for the world. Nisan is a holiday when the Jewish people establish their own identity. But Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment and the judgment is not just for the Jews. The judgment is for everybody. So we start with Adam and then Noah. Yes, the Jewish people have a covenant. We have a, it's a covenantal religion. There was never a claim in Judaism, ever, never, that you have to be a Jew to achieve eternal bliss. Never such claim. Jewish people have a covenant. It's our relationship. You want to join? You don't want to join? Okay. You can be a righteous person and not join, too. That's what separates Judaism from many other religions. We never claim this one way, ever. We think it's a very good way, maybe even the best way. But it's certainly not the only way. The fact of the matter is that Abraham is the culmination of creation because, in, because the purpose of God's creation in Genesis was not just to create a world but to create a space where human beings can interact with God which initially is the Garden of Eden from which we are expelled and then it's the search in the Torah is for another way that human beings and God can occupy the same space. So the Zichron of service then is actually predicated on the creation narratives of Genesis with the additional element that each of the characters of the, this creation, three-part, three-step creation, is identified with a particular idea. That is, the first one is judgment. That's Adam. The second is providence, God's concern for certain people that are righteous. That's Noah. But then there's the more general idea of covenant, and that is to say that covenant means you see yourself as part of some community. And covenant has the additional benefit of being an eternal community. And when it's an eternal community, like any long-term relationship, it is judged differently. Because everybody understands that within eternal relationships or even long-term relationships there are all kinds of ups and downs back and forth mistakes, failures, regrets, etc. 
But if you're in it for the long haul, then those things are looked upon differently. Someone who treats you poorly, you met that person one time, and they treat you poorly is one thing. Someone you're living with for 30 years who treats you poorly, you don't just walk out, presumably. You try to work it out, you discuss it, you fight, whatever it is, and you come hopefully to some kind of resolution. So the idea of covenant then is making a statement about if you're part of this covenant, if, if you see yourself as part of this covenant, then you're judged differently because you're part of it. It's a different way to relate to God. So that, I think, in the Zichrono section is a way of thinking about our connection to God which allows us to move forward from Rosh Hashanah one might say to survive the harsh judgment and to uh, move towards Yom Kippur and what's interesting is that within the Zichronot service I think (coughs) we are in a sense appealing to God very differently it begins and ends exactly the same way you remember everything you forget nothing right? that's how it begins you remember everything not just the actions, the thoughts, the rationalizations, the drives, desires, the works. And that's how we end. But then we say, that's true. But even in a relationship, if you remember everything, but certain things you remember more than others. Certain things are highlights, certain things are significant. So we're asking God to remember those things that are defining moments in this relationship. And one of those things is the binding of Isaac. So on, in, this, in, the, in the liturgy of Rosh Hashanah, I would say, it's fair to say that Abraham is the central figure. What's interesting and curious is that that's true in the, in the service. That's not true in the Torah readings. In the Torah readings of Rosh Hashanah, for whatever reason, the main player is not Abraham at all. The main player is, first of all, Sarah. And not just Sarah, but the, the, the Torah and Haftorah readings of Rosh Hashanah focus around women. Sarah, Hannah, and uh, Rachel. Rachel, Mavaka, now. just wanted to end with one further thought about Zichronot, what is probably the emotional highlight of the Zichronot service which is the verses that we recite from the prophetic writings. As I mentioned earlier, the, the order here is not what you would expect. You expect Tanakh. Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. We don't, it's not that way. It's Torah, Ketuvim, Nevi'im. And the Nevi'im, actually, we reserve for the end. Because the Nevi'im carry with it a very deep emotional charge. In particular, in Zichronot. Because the verses of Zichronot... We, we have three verses. The first of which is we quote the verse from Jeremiah God said, I remember the, the, the loyalty or the idealism or the faithfulness of your youth. When you followed me into the desert, that's how Jeremiah describes the Exodus into an unknown place. Sometimes you have faith in somebody and you follow them wherever they're going. That's very powerful. That's the first verse. And the second verse, I will remember 
the covenant that I made in your youth. Once again, it focuses on the youth. Sometimes people move apart and they later in life have disagreements and there's a lot of anger and we forget the way it once was. We forget all the past times. We forget what it, how we got to where we are. We forget the earlier times, the days of our youth. So we ask God to remember the way we once were. That's the second verse. And then the last verse of the prophet, before we get to the request, we have the ninth verse, one of the great highlights of Rosh Hashanah. It's also the Haftorah of the second day. V'nemar, as it is written in Jeremiah and the Haftorah, Habein Yakili Ephraim. Isn't Ephraim my beloved one, my beloved child? Yeled Shashuim, child that I played with. Even as I speak of him, Zohares Karenu. I remember him and I yearn for him. And this is interesting actually. It's one of the great dramatic moments. It's hard to say it without crying actually in Rosh Hashanah. And we're asking God to read. Sometimes you can't remember the way the person was even in their youth. They weren't so good in their youth either. So we ask God to remember us a different way. Not be made no reich. Not that we were adolescents, young people, but rather haben yakiri Ephraim. To remember when we were little innocent children. Yelet shashui. Go back, back in time. <coughs> and there's something so basic about that relationship. Rachem arachamenu. I will certainly have mercy from, from, from Rechem, from a womb. There's something so basic, so elemental. We are God's creations. We ask God on the day of creation. It's the day of creation. We ask God to remember God's created beings. Something so basic. And the Haftorah picks this up. Who was crying for her children? Rachel. Rachel cries. That's the Haftorah of Rosh Hashanah. Rachel cries for her children. And she never despairs. She never gives up, actually. Everybody else in the world has given up. Rachel's waiting for her children to return. So that is that appeal on Rosh Hashanah in the Zichronot service. I have to stop here. It is, by the way, the Hebrew poetry, apart from everything else, is glorious. You know, Hebrew is just very beautiful. It's one of truly, it's a, truly an awesome prayer. And it contains within it one of the, the basic themes of Rosh Hashanah. You should not forget one thing. At the end of the day, the day of Rosh Hashanah in our liturgy is called the Day of Remembrance. It's Yom HaZikaron. 